Staples show. There's change of foot in college sports, and whenever there's change of foot in college sports, I like to bring in the athletics Nicole Auerbach because she can help explain changes to people better than anybody I know, and especially changes in college sports which tend to make people a little hysterical. Nicole, how you doing? I am doing great, and you are absolutely right. There is a lot of hysteria right now, and. Instead of as tempting as it is sometimes to feed into it just to see how crazy people will get, a lot of times it's probably better just to, you know, tell them the facts and tell them what's really happening and try to get them to calm down. So what's going on right now is the transfer rules are changing. And we kind of knew this was coming, but the Big Ten set it into motion a few weeks ago by saying, hey, we're going to support the idea of a one-time transfer exception where players in football basketball, baseball, and hockey, which are the only sports that don't have this already, can just transfer and play immediately. And they get one of those during their entire college career, whether they're undergrads or graduates. And if they do it, they can transfer and play. If they want to transfer again, they have to sit out a year. And so the ACC then said, hey, we like this idea too. Nicole, I think we both know that the other leagues are going to come around on it as well. This is going to become the law of the land and people are freaking out. Yes. So it's actually very weird the way that all of these things are happening because it's almost two different tracks. I, I'm glad you're explaining this because this is the part that I think that even people are very confused. Even the wonky people don't quite get this one because it's not they are not exactly changing the transfer rules per se. They are changing the waiver process yes. for transfers. And and it's kind of a loophole. Okay. So so back to the Big Ten. The Big Ten pro- trying to propose something basically got stuck because the NCAA said, you know, we've got a lot of other things going on. Let's put a moratorium on transfer proposals last November. And they said, we have a working group looking at the waiver and that's it. Right. So the big 10 has this idea and the support for a concept, but it's not actually in the legislative process, which is very slow moving and would still take a while to get, you know, to the point where it would come to a vote. Um, But that's what the big 10 did. They wanted people to get on the record and say, this is how we feel about this issue and eventually get it into the pipeline. ACC puts out support for that same idea. Meanwhile, in a totally second secondary tract, I mean, obviously they're aware of these topics and proposals and they've talked to people, but the working group that is looking at the waiver decides on Tuesday to put out a statement saying, we would like to support a concept where everyone can transfer one time without having to sit out, including the sports that you just mentioned. So everyone, all NCAA sponsored sports, because they're doing it through this working group that was, again, only supposed to look at the waiver. And they're saying that this is tied to the waiver because it would relieve the stress and the uncertainty and all that stuff because you'd have a lot less waivers applied for. And you would have a waiver if you tried to transfer a second time and wanted to play right away. They said, we don't need to go through the regular process. We can just have the Division I Council vote on this as soon as April. This could take effect as soon as September. So basically, there's like a loophole in the process here 
that the working group is using to try to get this passed really, really quickly. And to your original point, the Big Ten has expressed support. The ACC has expressed support. I've talked to a lot of people. You've talked to a lot of people in the past week. There's a, a lot of momentum behind this. It is very possible that as soon as April, this becomes the law of the land. Basically, every one of your favorite football programs is preparing as if this is going to happen. Yes. So yes. just just expect this to happen. But that naturally has created some angst among the folks who like the status quo and fear change. And I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you to help a little bit, Nicole, because you did this before when we were talking about name, image, and likeness, and we're going to talk about that again later. That that's coming down the pipe too. But we we need to help help these folks because they get very worked up over potential changes thinking that the sky might fall. And the fact of the matter is it's probably not going to be as drastic as they think, but no, I would like to, to help them. So I will be them because trust me, they've all tweeted at me. So I feel like I got a pretty good handle on how they feel. Okay. And you please talk me off the ledge. So here we go. I am I am fan who sees that every football player is going to be able to transfer and play immediately. And here here we Let's go. go. I'm ready. Let's go. But Nicole, it's going to be free agency. Nobody's going to be loyal to anybody. My whole teams are going to be taken away. Nick Saban is going to take every one of Southern Miss's players. Every one of them. First of all, there's a lot of player movement already. You have grad transfers basically doing this already. You have players getting waivers. They're already doing this already. Coaches are moving freely. You had a coach leave the day. You had a coach leave after National Signing Day this year. So all this does is even the playing field. Coaches are moving freely without sitting out for a year. Players get to do that one time. You're not going to see an entire team have an exodus because there's just no spots for them. There are still restrictions on scholarships that you can take in each individual calendar year. So Alabama cannot take 30 transfers from Southern Miss. So that's not going to happen. You might see chunks of players after a coaching change or something like that, but there have to be spots for them to land. And that's the part that's going to keep this from getting out of control. But what's to stop a player from transferring after his freshman year and then transferring after his sophomore year and then transferring after his junior year? They're just mercenaries. Well, well that's the, the second part of this is you can't, do that a second time. It's a one-time exception. So the second time, you're going to have to sit. And I think that's fair. And I think a lot of administrators and coaches and even players would say that's fair too. Where is the loyalty, Nicole? Where is the loyalty? I would have sawed off three of my limbs to play for my favorite school. How could these ingrates leave? Well, this is probably more of a reflection on how you feel about college sports and about players competing, putting their bodies at risk for a scholarship and not what the market would actually pay them. So that's a separate issue. We can have a separate, you know, kind of therapy session about that. But I will say coaches are moving freely. Administrators are moving freely. And now the players are very cognizant of how much of a big business this whole thing is. And they see, just like fans see, that you have them still being gifted a scholarship. And yes, they're getting great resources for food and academic support and all these other things. But 
they're what they're getting is the same as it's always been. And meanwhile, now coaches are making nine million dollars a year. So there is a power imbalance that really takes front and center instead of just necessarily like loyalty. They see that they are a cog in the system and they have seen coaches run off players. They have seen lots of different issues. They have seen people rail against the transfer portal while putting their own name in for a Baylor job. Let's just say that's just an example pulled out of thin air. They have seen all of that. They are aware of all of that. This is an era of more student athlete power and empowerment and activism and platforms and all of these things. So it's really just a natural extension of all that. This is just how the world is in 2020. It is not just this blindly a coach gets to do whatever he wants at all times in his program. And there's just walls up all the time. We actually have to care and listen to the players who, again, in a lot of cases, feel like they are just cogs in the system. And that's why they're able this one small dose of power, which is freedom of movement, one time without having to sit out. It, it is crazy. And and the, the Southern Miss Alabama thing, somebody actually did tweet that at me. And they thought that the entire Southern Miss team would transfer. I, I, well, the point theoretically, the point I tried to make was there's a reason Nick Saban didn't sign them out of high school. So, yes, there may be one player at Southern Miss that he finds valuable that he may take. But. No, they're, they're not going to take them all. And yes, what you mentioned about the, the scholarship limits. So the fact that you can only sign 25 players a year, 25 new players, whether they're out of high school, junior college, transfers, that rule is going to keep everybody from moving around. Max Olson, our friend, had a great story this week about how the math of the transfer portal is going to keep people in place. I mean, it, it already it already is yeah. because. And, and that was something that was like, honestly, the main takeaway from year one of the portal was there wasn't enough landing spots for people. People were going to have to go down a level because there weren't scholarships open. So it's exactly that same problem. Even if they do a sliding scale thing, you know, coaches are going to just have to recruit like they're going to have to approach that that cap differently and probably leave, I don't know, six or seven open spots each year for transfers, not knowing who necessarily they're going to want at that point. Yeah, like that's what's going to happen. And, and you can you can kind of bank on more guys leaving than normally you would have. And I think right. that's not going to be the case at certain schools. I think if you're at Clemson, you're at Ohio State, you're at Alabama, you're at Georgia, you may have some guys leaving for playing time, but you won't have as many leaving on average. So you've got to account for that too. And if you're at you know a lower tier Power 5 school, maybe you are going to have some more guys leaving just because they're not feeling that they're well, in the right place. Here, here's the thing, too. I just want to make this point for people acting like this is going to be a brand new phenomenon. I, I wrote a story a few years ago at USA Today about the grad transfer and kind of an unintended. Well, I mean, it, it was kind of intended, but it definitely became an unintended side effect where you had coaches in power and high major programs tracking who was really good in the mid majors, right? Like they were looking at player of the years in the conference USA and leagues like that. And even first team, second team guys, and looking to see who was possibly on track to be a grad transfer. And then you can reach out through middlemen and gauge interest, right? So you were having a couple of very key players, a couple teams in the story lost like their two leading scorers to grad transfers. And it ultimately cost these coaches their job because that team was supposed to be pretty good that year. Wasn't, it was a big year, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the side effect of 
this is exactly what people are worried about tampering and poaching and things like this. And the idea that, you know, you're, you're, you're developing, you're spending all these years and energy at a lower level place. And then you get plucked for your final year and you go to like an Alabama of the world or whatever. Now we're in football and that is already happening. It's just not above board. And again, it's kind of in this narrow grad transfer realm. Although with the waivers, you see it too, because Andy, are we really going to pretend that we're surprised when a kid enters the transfer portal and then the next day announces where he's going? Wow, that was a really fast above board process yeah. since he entered the portal. No tampering whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, th- there is tampering going on everywhere. There are staffs that will call a guy's high school coach his freshman year and say, Ooh, looks like he's not playing very much. Is he happy? Would he be interested? Yeah. And, and that goes on everywhere now i think what you're going to see is either the ncaa makes enforcing tampering rules more of a priority or they make harsher tampering rules and and i'm telling you i've heard stories there are staffs that are dumb enough to text people who text players like not not coaches but text players like hey you want to come here yeah so not great those coaches will get hammered and and it'll become more sophisticated but the fact of the matter is tampering has always happened and will continue to always happen yes and i i'm with you that you know what i've been hearing from people who have been you know trying to wrap their heads around that issue is that it's got to be really strict penalties right because you got to try to deter it you've got to be able to punish people when it happens because that is really, you know, to a lot of people, to a lot of coaches, that's the number one fear. And that's actually why, and I know this part of the puzzle is also confusing people, that there's a transfer release built into the proposal right now. And that's really just to guard against tampering. Because I think that you, you have people who are worried that you're going to have coaches from another school, like camping out in front of their best player's dorm room or something like that. And then that kid wants to transfer there and they want the ability to block that. And and so they want that for like egregious situations of tampering. And that's really why that piece of the puzzle is in there, because people are worried. Worst case scenario, people are going to go out of control with this, which, by the way, that doesn't happen in the sports where this already exists in volleyball and lacrosse and all those things. But there's so much more at stake at football. So it certainly makes sense that people could assume that some of these assistant coaches could potentially go a little crazy overboard. Well, here's the deal with that piece of it. They're going to have to limit it to the school they think was tampering. And, and by, by blocking that school, they will be calling that school out publicly. They'll be saying it. So they have to be willing to do that because here's what's going to happen. If you issue a blanket block a la Bill Snyder back in the day, you will be shamed out of that. So your, your AD is going to come to you and go, we can't do this. We're going to look like idiots. So we're not doing that. And 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 listen, the, the conferences individually, I'm sure we'll see conferences say you're not going to be allowed to interconference transfer and play right away. You still have to sit out a year again. And there could be a public backlash to that. That could eventually loosen. But I, I think you'll see something like that from a conference standpoint. But you're right. Coaches can't do that because they got shamed over and over. There would be so much public pressure over and over. That that's why we have the transfer portal now, because you can't block people from contacting other schools. So that's literally what caused the portal. And there was a lot of public support behind that concept. So this is kind of the other side of the same coin. And you've got to expect that there would be the same sort of public pressure, outcry and shaming, as you said, to get things fixed and allow these players to actually have that freedom of movement. It's going to be really interesting, though, that once this is in place and the first time 
a coach tries to block somebody and they only block one school, let's say it's big state or tech you or whatever. And that means they are accusing them. They are publicly accusing them. It's going to get juicy. Yeah. Let's let, let it happen. Like I'm here for that level of, of spiciness and maybe like, I mean, obviously, you know, they would have to answer some questions about it, but maybe there's like a hearing about it. Like I'm, I'm down for all of that. But again, you could also, and this is just a crazy idea, which will never happen. You know, coaches could just agree to not recruit off of other people's rosters. They can't control themselves, Nicole. That they that would be like asking themselves. them to not leave jobs right after they signed a full class this, of, of athletes. These are also things they can control themselves. But choose not but, but to. clearly they can't. So <laughs> they, they clearly can't. But so so my point is just that they're going to get all hysterical about this. And it's literally as simple as just agreeing gentlemen's agreement not to do this. Well, and, and here's the thing. You talked about their salaries have gone up while tuition room and board has stayed the same. Their salaries are the reason they they have to handle this. You know, their movement, which created those higher salaries, is why this is happening to them. So guess what? You're getting paid more to deal with this. Deal with it. Figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I've been talking to some coaches in sports. So I'll have a story in The Athletic this week about this and in some of the sports where this one-time exception already exists. And they live in this world. And I used the phrase, re-recruiting your own roster to one of them. And they said, well, I don't look at it that way. I mean, I look at it that I should constantly be building relationships with my players. Yes, your players so, should in, should like <laughs> playing for you, should respect you. Yeah, and they should and, – and, and this coach was saying they should know – if they're frustrated about playing time, I should know that. We should be having conversations about it. And I shouldn't be blindsided by someone wanting to leave, and they shouldn't be blindsided by their role on the program, right? So there shouldn't be that disconnect where someone would abruptly transfer. And it's like, wow, what a concept. Just view it like, oh, I want to continue to have great relationships with my current players and constantly be focusing on that instead of being like, if I don't re-recruit them, they're going to leave. Well, the hardos are going to tell you, no, you got to coddle your players. No. You don't have to coddle your players. You know, In fact, the, play, the player who needs coddling, that's the player you want to transfer. You don't want them on your team anymore anyway. So, yes, the players who want to be coached the way you coach, that's who you want. There's a reason Dabo Sweeney doesn't lose people except to graduate transfers because they haven't gotten to play yet. There's a reason guys don't show up at Clemson, stay a year, and leave. Like They like playing there. Yes. Be a good coach and, and you won't lose many people. Be who you say you are when you're recruiting them. Yeah. Not too hard. These are all basic things. And listen, I get that coaches love to complain and they love to go worst case scenario. They love to act like it's nothing that they have done in this space has ever caused problems. But it's not the end of the world players can transfer one time without penalty. It's going to be about playing time. It's going to be about coaches taking jobs and that's the guy they committed to. And it just, it just eliminates this process of having to apply for waivers. It eliminates, um, you know, just the, the angst and frustrations and asking to be released from an NLI. These are things that are already happening. It's just kind of making it easier across the board. And if it's really that much of a problem for you, then you're doing something wrong in the way you're building your program. Speaking of guys taking jobs, you talked to a guy this week who, who has a new job, but a couple yeah. of years ago, he took a job. 
and everything was agreed upon, and then the fans revolted, and then he didn't have that job anymore. And that's Greg Schiano. Now he's the new coach at Rutgers. After it, I mean that that search itself was was fairly eventful, but he talked to you really. I mean that the most expansive comments about what happened at Tennessee since that happened. What did you think of of the way he described that? Because I mean, it's it's crazy hearing it from his end because you, you you know the Tennessee end, we know the John Curry end of things, but this was a guy who thought he'd signed a contract to go coach yep. a team, and all of a sudden they're like, eh, never mind. Yeah, it, it is really crazy to think about it from his perspective because you're right. So te- at this point, Tennessee search has already kind of you know veered in a couple of different directions. They've gotten some nose. They go and they are in Columbus. They sign this document. And then Greg Schiano goes into a team meeting. And in that team meeting time span, which is just a couple of hours, that's when everything implodes, right? So you put yourself in his shoes. You come out of this meeting and it's done. That is, that, it's over. that's crazy. Cause, and he's, they're in the meeting talking about Ohio State stuff. They're, yeah, they're preparing they're, for the Big Ten championship game. Right. That, so they're thinking they're going to let him coach <laughs> through that. Right. Thinking X's and O's, thinking about getting ready for that game, and you walk. And, and so you, you're probably not aware of any of this. You're probably not following it on your phone. I, I, I wonder how much text, you know, how many text calls he was getting from people as this was heating up. Because oh, I'm sure, I'm sure he got a bunch. Uh, you know, it, it clearly still hurts. And, and that was one thing because he hasn't really talked about much of it. And he, he, you know, he would, he would pause and, and be really careful about the words he was using, even for stuff where he's saying, you know, how about how nasty it was for anyone to see, especially his family um, and, and things like that. And then he would try to spin things into, you know, this all worked out the way it was supposed to so that I could end up here now. And, but it, it was so clear about how difficult it was and how even now he had to force himself to think about, okay, then I had a game to prepare for and I was able to do that and that was a good distraction. And even now it's like, well, I was really, you know, the, it was, it wasn't a lot of fun. You know, it was, it was hard, but it led to where I am now, right? Like it, there's just this, you know, you're still trying to remind yourself um, of all the other things that happen afterwards, because I imagine that it's really easy to get stuck in thinking about that day and how terrible it was and to see the things people were saying and really how it was politicized. It was weaponized right. and it happened so quickly and it, it spooked the Tennessee administrators and, and you're probably thinking, and he didn't get into this either, but I'm just saying like you put yourself in these shoes. You're thinking, what about the people who hired me? How didn't they push back on this, right? Go to bat for right, me, things exactly. like that. So there's probably so many other things that he still just, you know, is internalizing and doesn't want to talk about yet. But it, it, I just can't imagine agreeing to something, thinking you're, you're about to be a head coach again, this thing you really wanted to do. You sit in a meeting, three hours later, it's over. Out of nothing you it, did. It's crazy. And my thing on that was always, I was fine with Tennessee fans saying they didn't want Greg Schiano to be their head coach because of his head coaching record. I was fine with them revolting over that. I was fine with them saying we will not support this because they didn't think he was the right coach for Tennessee. Cause I don't think he was the right coach for Tennessee. I think his mindset would not work well in that fishbowl, but what they did with the, the weaponizing the Sandusky stuff, which by the way was like triple hearsay, nothing ever proven 
always denied by the people yeah. who got accused of things. Yes, totally hearsay, inadmissible. Um, and it was exactly, it was weaponized. It was something, and a lot of people involved, you know, even still in, in Tennessee and, and around that search believe that it's as, as we do, that there is at least a portion of that fan base that, that just found it to be an opportunity right. to rail against the actual hire. And they really weren't that concerned about the Sandusky thing. And I know Tennessee fans get really mad if you try to paint that brush that that's all it was. And there were people who were legitimately concerned about it, this or that. It didn't matter because they were even the ones who, if you were using it as an opportunistic move, it still worked. It still got him not to be the coach. So it was just such a mess. And and yes, there are people who absolutely believe that would not have happened if it was Nick Saban, if it was a coach with a different track record. Oh, absolutely. It, they, they wanted, they wanted somebody with a better record. They, they looked at him as another Butch Jones, as a defensive-minded Butch Jones. I agreed with them on that. I, Greg, yeah, Greg Schiano has a reputation of, of being a guy who like freaks out if the temperature in the in the complex isn't right and gets real into the, the little things that don't really matter. Well, in Knoxville, which I think is the highest pressure job in college football, that's not a good place for you. But that doesn't mean you should bring this other thing that has been you know denied isn't isn't proven (laughs) exactly why you don't bring that into it if you don't like the guy as a coach just say that and look i i find it very interesting that tennessee did it the way it did and obviously what you saw afterward was a very weird chaotic coaching search that may have wound up finding the right guy in (laughs) all along jeremy pruitt we'll see but it was it was just so bizarre, and so how is how is the situation at Rutgers now? Because he was talking with Rutgers and then walked away because yes. didn't he didn't feel like they were committed enough to to competing in the Big Ten. What brought him back? Right, this was it was still messy, but in a way less messy way um, because you didn't have as much fracturing from an athletic leadership standpoint. And university standpoint, you didn't have the fan backlash. The fan backlash you had in this case was everyone freaking out that Rutgers might not be getting Shiano. Right. And their, their thing the was, you better go get him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was the exact opposite um, scenario here. And so, yeah, I mean, basically, it was very clear that that was who everybody wanted like from a high school's coaches standpoint from prominent alumni eric legrand players everyone around the program donors people wanting greg Schiano back and that's hard to negotiate if you're Rutgers from their side right because this is the only guy which means he has all of the leverage and that's what you see in you know people freaked out a little bit about the length of his contract the amount of money they're paying him things like that but again this is what happens when you have leverage and also when the program is in such a position that you're you know you want an eight-year deal because you know this is going to take a while but it was about that commitment it was about if we're going to be a big time football program we need x y and z we need this amount of support staffers we need this amount of people to do video we need this amount of people personnel to help out and support the recruiting staff it's, it's all those little things that you know obviously greg Schiano has coached um at different levels but he has just very recently been at Ohio state and you see all of the, the support behind everything that they do there. And he knows what that looks like. And it was also different things like he's, he's, they're going to be hiring some mental health counselors. 
they're going to be a, changing one of the rooms into like a sleep pod room, like a nap room so that people are getting enough rest. And all of these little things that, again, even 10 years ago, we weren't as educated about. And you see this across the country where people are kind of prioritizing things and hiring in certain areas. So it's all of those things that are behind the scenes that are going to help you help develop players or, I mean, I don't think someone's going to commit to you because of a nap pod, but they're going to feel better, be better, be healthier, and probably play football better, right? If you have certain things supporting you behind the scenes. So it was stuff like that. And obviously a sticking point that wasn't a hundred percent resolved was about facilities and a standalone football practice facility. And there's in the contract, there's like language about, you know, they have to go like Greg Shiano will be part of the fundraising efforts to raise a certain amount of money. And then as soon as they hit a certain target, they will start building. So it wasn't a blanket like we will do this right now. We will commit to building a facility starting tomorrow. But it's in the deal that there is a compromise reach. There are there, there's just there's so many things that Rutgers is behind about from a football facility standpoint because of the jump from conferences and then not getting the full big 10 money. So it's kind of all of those things baked into, and then not having a lot of success. Right. So, um, I, I was, I was on campus on Monday and I saw the new facility that they have for men's and women's basketball, gymnastics and wrestling. And it is phenomenal. Like it is right up there with anybody else in the country and especially gymnastics. I've never seen anything like that. So, they're starting to build to the level of that they're going to need to be in the big 10. They're just not there with football right now and they don't have a standalone facility. And so it's all of those things that he needed Rutgers to at least compromise on before he would take this job. Because otherwise I think, you know, you're, you're worried you're just setting up to fail in a much tougher division in a much tougher league this time around. You heard it here first Rutgers, 2031 big 10 champs. It's happening. That is not what I said. Dang it. Is that what you're saying? I was trying to get him excited. I, I... <laughs> Maybe you're saying that. I was going to say gymnastics is about to take Well, our, our, our friend Lauren, yeah, our friend Lauren Sisler, who, who works for the SEC Network and, and AL.com, Rutgers Gymnastics alum, I'm sure is very pumped about, about the possibility of raising, yeah. raising, well, I, raising the uneven I, bars, as it were. I wanted to jump into, you know how like they have those, I don't even know what it it's is. A foam it's a like foam Yeah, it's a foam pit. Yeah. So I really wanted to do that. And I, I was asking the person who was giving me the tour if they've ever jumped in. And they said that they're really, they have no upper body strength. So they don't know that they'd be able to get out of it at the end. And they were worried that they would be embarrassed in front of all the gymnasts. So the, fo- <laughs> they couldn't the, get out. the foam pits look like a lot of fun. Now I take, I take my kids to the, the trampoline park quite often where they have the foam pits. And so I have been tossed into the foam pit. I have fallen off into the foam pit. I have been knocked into the foam pit in the, jo- in the jousting fall, area. I believe that you have fallen or got pushed in. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it's not that easy to get out. It's kind of embarrassing <laughs> if you're a grown-up. It's, it's a little bit harder. It's like trying to get out of quicksand. So you, hey, you may so have saved a fair- yourself a little, little embarrassment there, just a little. This makes me feel better about not – running across the room and jumping into the thing. So oh, you should definitely you. do it every chance you get though. It's okay, still awesome. It still feels awesome. Yeah. All right. Nicole Auerbach, future big 10 gymnast. She's got yes. one year of eligibility left. We'll make one time transfer. That's, that's right. A one time transfer, Michigan to <laughs> Rutgers, make it happen. 
Thank you so much, Nicole. Anytime, Andy. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically, a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can help connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Staples for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Staples for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. DoorDash has something for every lifestyle. On the go with no time to waste, order pickup and pass the line. Having trouble organizing a meal with your friends? We make it easy with group ordering. DoorDash is more than just delivery. DoorDash brings all of America's flavors to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code STAPLES. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code STAPLES. Don't forget, that's code STAPLES for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. We are joined now by the Athletics Missouri beat writer, Peter Baugh. And if you have not read this yet, get yourself to the Athletic. He has a great story on new Missouri coach Eli Drinkwitz that goes to his hometown of Alma, Arkansas, the, the former lifeguard at the Alma pool Eli Drinkwitz now making $4 million a year coaching the Missouri Tigers. And uh, Peter, I, I love I love the lead of your story because you start out with a seven-year-old Eli Drinkwitz, kind of like Hayden Panettiere's character in Remember the Titans, telling the coach, hey, so our three, four, five hitters are not very good. You may want to switch them up with some other guys. And, and Eli Drinkwitz, mind you, is on the team, but he's the number eight hitter. So he's not talking about himself. He's just... He's just trying to get some more offense. You know, the one and two guys are getting on base. He wants some people who can drive them home. He's seven years old. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's kind of always had a, a mind for coaching from what I what it sounded like. His mom was was telling me about how when his when his sisters were in the yard, he'd like coach them up when he was a kid. His older brothers did not like it when he tried to coach them up, but his sisters, they'd listen a little bit. Uh, but yeah, he's really always been kind of drawn to this he has a mind that's a little analytical and like likes to I guess think about things and what makes teams or athletes click so and you see that at a really early age and that was one of the things that a lot of people told me when I was down there well and the other piece of it that that I'm not sure people realize is the connection to Gus Malzahn at Springdale High School in Springdale Arkansas and not just he didn't just show up with Gus at Auburn, it didn't work that way. How did Eli get hooked in with that group of people, which also includes Rhett Lashley, who's the the offensive coordinator at Miami now? It's a it's a pretty interesting group. Yeah, it's really interesting. And kind of what happened was Eli first met Gus Malzahn in, in 1999, when I believe Gus was at a at a high school called Shiloh. 
pretty much Eli was a rising junior. It was the summer before his junior year at Alma High. And the coach at Alma brought him to the state all-star game as a manager. The, it was like a senior all-star game. Um, but the Frankie Vines, the Alma head coach, was allowed to bring along a few people to help help with his with his team, and he picked Eli because he he wanted Eli to like kind of see what it was like, I guess, uh, and he thought he'd be a good manager. So Eli, there, he's they said he was like the MVP of the team, and he was like connecting with people. And Gus Malzahn was one of the assistants, and that was kind of when he first planted the seeds of uh, who he was. And Gus Malzahn was impressed. Um, fast forward four or five years, Eli's going into his senior year at Arkansas Tech. Uh, reaches out to Gus Malzahn and is like, hey, I need to do my student teaching and would, would love to be a, a graduate or a, uh, a student assistant football coach uh, for Springdale. And Gus brings him on. Um, so he coached as a student assistant for one year. And then Gus made the jump to, to college. Eli went back to Springdale and they kind of kept up with each other. And then uh, the Auburn, they needed a quality control coach and, and Gus reached out to Eli. That, that's amazing, and then and so Eli goes to Boise State. He goes to to NC State. He becomes the head coach at Appalachian State. Has a great first year. I think the big question about Eli from from the outside is: Is he ready for this job at Missouri? It's obviously a very big job. You're in the SEC. He's got one year of head coaching experience, which went well. But the question I think people ask is: How much of that was Eli, and how much of that was Scott Satterfield setting up a great program? But I also go back, Peter, to how NC State sort of fell off when Eli left. And I realize that you know Ryan Finley leaving has something to do with that too. But it, it seems like he was a very important piece of that puzzle too. Is he ready for coaching the SEC, for, for managing a program with this kind of resources? You know, I think that's the that's the big question. I'm I'm the thing that intrigues me the most is kind of his his recruiting and if he if he's ready to I mean like you said at at App State he had Scott Satterfield's recruits um and most a team that he pretty much built um early returns on Eli recruiting at Missouri have been solid he kind of had a a really difficult situation recruiting wise with some NCAA sanctions they had fewer scholarships to give out and the coaching change people decommitted but he got a Damon Hazelton, a good graduate transfer for Virginia Tech. Um, so I'm curious if, if he can, with his first full class, how he actually can recruit. But offensively, I mean, he's had success in the in the places he's been. Like you said, at, at North Carolina State, he was he had really good offensive seasons. And you there's kind of a chicken and, an, and an egg effect with Ryan Finley. But it's also worth noting that he was at, with Ryan Finley at Boise before he transferred to NC State, and he really helped develop Ryan Finley. So if if Eli is good at developing quarterbacks, like that, that can go a long way because that's, as you know, the most important position on a football team. Well, and and one of the important positions also is primary offensive play caller, and that's going to be Eli Drinkwitz. Which you know, it's pretty interesting because you see different schools of thought on this. Lincoln Riley, when he got the job at Oklahoma, never considered doing anything but calling plays. Uh, Gary Patterson at, at TCU has called plays defensively for a long time. But Tom Herman, when he got the Houston job as a first-time head coach, said, you know what, I don't 
I don't want to call plays. I'm going to ha- I'm going to hire someone to do that. And he hired major Applewhite. And then he's also hired people at Texas since then. Jimbo Fisher likes to call plays, but with Eli, how, what was that decision-making process like? And obviously he did it at, at Appalachian state. What made him decide, okay, I'm, I'm still ready, still capable of doing this here at Missouri. From what he said, I think it was a little like Lincoln Riley in that there was never a doubt in his mind he was going to call plays as head coach. He, he kind of said his job is the one that's on the line. Like he wants it in his control. And he, he has seen it as he got to where he is because he has a good offensive mind and he's called plays and he wants to continue that um, because that's what's brought him success. So if it's, it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, I'm curious to see, I mean, Missouri's last head coach, Barry Odom, he, he spent some time, I know defensive plays and offensive play calling is a little different, but he spent some time as defensive. Not in terms of time though, in terms of time during the week spent, it's, you are spending most of your time on one side of the ball. So you better trust the person you've hired to run the other side of the ball. Exactly. Yeah. And with, with Barry, he, um, he called some defensive plays, but eventually delegated that responsibility because it was, it was, it's a lot of time. And Tom Herman called plays at Texas for the last two years. And then he kind of handed off the play calling to the new offensive Mike coordinator. Yersich, there. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you kind of can see it both ways and I'm, I'm fascinated. He's also going to be, I think working pretty hands on with the, with the quarterbacks, um, he brought in Bush Hamden as an assistant coach, Washington's old offensive coordinator. Uh, but he's working with both quarterbacks and wide receivers. But I think from what Eli said, he's going to be pretty hands-on with quarterbacks too. Um, so he's going to have a lot on his plate. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how he can handle it. He, he certainly, from what, what I've learned about him, he's not, and I think a lot of coaches are like this, but he's not, he won't shy away from putting in a lot of hours. Like he's, He's a pretty intense guy when it comes to like his his work ethic, um, which I mean you kind of need to get to where he's been at thirty six, having no playing experience. You kind of have to like outwork people. Um, so we'll see. I think I'm really really curious about that too. If he's going to be more like someone like Lincoln Riley. I mean, obviously, if he had that much success, then people at Missouri would be thrilled. Or if he'll he'll be like Tom Herman and eventually need to delegate. So. Who's going to be throwing the ball for them? Is it is it going to be Sean Robinson? I mean, he he sat out a year. He looked pretty good at TCU when he was healthy. It's just that that wasn't always the case. My my, if I was to predict, I would say it'll be Sean Robinson, and I'm I'm really curious to see um, to see how he does. I'll actually I I'll have a story up on him probably when this when this podcast is out. Um, but he he has kind of an an interesting background where he was just like you said at TCU he was constantly banged up he had a his left shoulder was was bothering him all season and he was he was okay and he had flashes where he looked really good um so I think he's he's kind of the front runner I think this last year has been really helpful for him to kind of just get healthy and catch up age-wise he went when he went to TCU he was I think he arrived on campus as a 17-year-old. He's a lot younger than people in his grade. Yeah, I, I, I don't recommend that. I, I, I did that. I was a 17-year-old college freshman and, and also in a football program like that. 17-year-olds and 22-year-olds are very, very different people. Exactly, yeah. So I think it was really beneficial for him to kind of get get a year to catch up age-wise, to get healthy. 
Um, and we'll, we'll see where he's at. We'll start spring practice starts March 7th is when we'll start to kind of get a glimpse at it. Um, but I would guess he's the, the front runner. There's another Connor Basilak looked pretty good as a true freshman. He played a few games, kept his red shirt, but he tore his ACL the last game of the season. So he's not going to be ready for until like probably late spring or in the summer. And then Taylor Powell's another option. Who's been the backup the past two years. It will be a fascinating first spring practice for Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri because this this has all come really fast for him. We're going to find out if he's ready. Peter Baugh, thank you so much for joining us and look forward to reading that Sean Robinson story. Yeah, thank you so much thank for having me. Thank you so me. much for listening to the show. Please rate, review. We love all the feedback you can give us. We just want to make a better show for you. And if you haven't already, subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash Staples. That's theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. You get 40% off your first year. It's the best deal going. I know I say it every time, but it's the truth, and I'll keep saying it. Thanks for listening.